Chapter Twenty, Part Two of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One, by Giacomo Casanova. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One, The Venetian Years, by Giacomo Casanova. Episode Five, Milan and Mantua. Chapter Twenty, Part Two. The next day after dinner I left Marina, getting ready for the theatre, and having put everything of value I possessed in my pocket, I took a carriage and proceeded to the Casino of Pomi. I felt confident of disabling the false count, and sent the carriage away. I was conscious of being guilty of great folly in exposing my life with such an adversary. I might have broken my engagement with him without implicating my honour, but the fact is that I felt well disposed for a fight and, as I was certainly in the right, I thought the prospect of a duel very delightful. A visit to a dancer, a brute professing to be a nobleman, who insults her in my presence, who wants to kill her, who allows her to be carried off in his very teeth, and whose only opposition is to give me an appointment. It seemed to me that if I had failed to come, I should have given him the right to call me a coward. The Count had not yet arrived. I entered the coffee-room to wait for him. I met a good-looking Frenchman there, and I addressed him. Being pleased with this conversation, I told him that I expected the arrival of a man, and that as my honour required that he should find me alone, I would feel grateful if he would go away as soon as I saw the man approaching. A short time afterwards I saw my adversary coming along, but with a second. I then told the Frenchman that he would oblige me by remaining, and he accepted as readily as if I had invited him to a party of pleasure. The Count came in with his follower, who was sporting a sword at least forty inches long, and had all the look of a cutthroat. I advanced towards the Count, and said to him dryly, "'You told me that you would come alone.' "'My friend will not be in the way, as I only want to speak to you.' "'If I had known that, I would not have gone out of my way. But do not let us be noisy, and let us go to some place where we can exchange a few words without being seen. Follow me.' I left the coffee-room with a young Frenchman, who, being well acquainted with the place, took me to the most favourable spot, and we waited there for the two other champions, who were walking slowly and talking together. When they were within ten paces, I drew my sword and called upon my adversary to get ready. My Frenchman had already taken out his sword, but he kept it under his arm. Two to one!' exclaimed Chely. "'Send your friend away, and this gentleman will go likewise.' At all events, your friend wears a sword, therefore we are two against two. Yes, said the Frenchman, let us have a four-handed game. I do not cross swords with a dancer, said the cutthroat. He had scarcely uttered those words when my friend, going up to him, told him that a dancer was certainly as good as a blackleg, and gave him a violent blow with the flat of his sword on the face. I followed his example with Sirli, who began to beat a retreat, and said that he only wanted to tell me something, and that he would fight afterwards. Well, speak. You know me, and I do not know you. Tell me who you are. My only answer was to resume laying my sword upon the scoundrel, while the Frenchman was showing the same dexterity upon the back of his companion. But the two cowards took to their heels, and there was nothing for us to do but to sheath our weapons. Thus did the duel end in a manner even more amusing than Marina herself had anticipated. My brave Frenchman was expecting someone at the casino. 
I left him after inviting him to supper for that evening after the opera. I gave him the name which I had assumed for my journey and the address of my hotel. I gave Marina a full description of the adventure. "'I will,' she said, "'amuse everybody at the theatre this evening with a story of your meeting. But that which pleases me most is that, if your second is really a dancer, he can be no other than Monsieur Balletti, who is engaged with me for the Mantua theatre.' I stored all my valuables in my trunk again, and went to the opera, where I saw Baletti, who recognized me, and pointed me out to all his friends, to whom he was relating the adventure. He joined me after the performance, and accompanied me to the inn. Marina, who had already returned, came to my room as soon as she heard my voice, and I was amused at the surprise of the amiable Frenchman, when he saw the young artist with whom he had engaged to dance the comic parts. Marina, although an excellent dancer, did not like the serious style. Those two handsome adepts of Tepsichore had never met before, and they began an amorous warfare which made me enjoy my supper immensely, because, as he was a fellow artist, Marina assumed towards Belletti a tone well adapted to the circumstances, and very different to her usual manner with other men. She shone with wit and beauty that evening, and was in an excellent temper, for she had been much applauded by the public the true version of the Celli business being already well known. The theatre was to be open only for ten more nights, and as Marina wished to leave Milan immediately after the last performance, we decided on travelling together. In the meantime, I invited Paletti, it was an Italian name which he had adopted for the stage, to be our guest during the remainder of our stay in Milan. The friendship between us had a great influence upon all the subsequent events of my life, as the reader will see in these memoirs. He had great talent as a dancer, but that was the least of his excellent qualities. He was honest, his feelings were noble, he had studied much, and he had received the best education that could be given in those days in France to a nobleman. On the third day I saw plainly that Marina wished to make a conquest of her colleague, and feeling what great advantage might accrue to her from it, I resolved on helping her. She had a post-chaise for two persons, and I easily persuaded her to take Baletti with her, saying that I wished to arrive alone in Mantua for several reasons which I could not confide to her. The fact was that if I had arrived with her, people would have naturally supposed that I was a lover, and I wished to avoid that. Baletti was delighted with the proposal. He insisted upon paying his share of the expenses, but Marina would not hear of it. The reasons alleged by the young man for paying his own expenses were excellent ones, and it was with great difficulty that I prevailed upon him to accept Marina's offer, but I ultimately succeeded. I promised to wait for them on the road, so as to take dinner and supper together, and on the day appointed for our departure I left Milan one hour before them. Reaching the city of Cremona very early, where we intended to sleep, I took a walk about the streets, and, finding a coffee-house, I went in. I made there the acquaintance of a French officer, and we left the coffee-room together to take a short ramble. A very pretty woman happened to pass in a carriage, and my companion stopped her to say a few words. Their conversation was soon over, and the officer joined me again. "'Who is that lovely lady?' I inquired. "'She is a truly charming woman, and I can tell you an anecdote about her worthy of being transmitted to posterity. You need not suppose that I am going to exaggerate, for the adventure is known to everybody in Cremona.' The charming woman whom you have just seen is gifted with wit greater even than her beauty, and here is a specimen of it. A young officer, 
one amongst many military men who were courting her, when Marshal de Richelieu was commanding in Genoa, boasted of being treated by her with more favour than all the others, and one day, in the very coffee-room where we met, he advised a brother officer not to lose his time in courting her, because he had no chance whatever of obtaining any favour. "'My dear fellow,' said the other officer, "'I have a much better right to give you that piece of advice, for I have already obtained from her everything which can be granted to a lover.' "'I am certain that you are telling a lie,' exclaimed the young man, "'and I request you to follow me out.' "'Most willingly,' said the indiscreet swain, "'but what is the good of ascertaining the truth through a duel and of cutting our throats, when I can make the lady herself certify the fact in your presence?' "'I bet twenty-five louis that it is all untrue,' said the incredulous officer. "'I accept your bet. Let us go.' The two contending parties proceeded together towards the dwelling of the lady whom you saw just now, who was to name the winner of the twenty-five louis. They found her in a dressing-room. "'Well, gentlemen,' she said, "'what lucky wind has brought you here together at this hour?' "'It is a bet, madam,' answered the unbelieving officer." and you alone can be the umpire in our quarrel. This gentleman has been boasting of having obtained from you everything a woman can grant to the most favoured lover. I have given him the lie in the most impressive manner, and a duel was to ensue, when he offered to have the truth of his boast certified by you. I have bet twenty-five louis that you would not admit it, and he has taken my bet. Now, madam, you can say which of us two is right. You have lost, sir, she said to him. But now I beg both of you to quit my house, and I give you fair warning that if you ever dare to show your faces here again, you will be sorry for it. The two heedless fellows went away dreadfully mortified. The unbeliever paid the bet, but he was deeply vexed, called the other a coxcomb, and a week afterwards killed him in a duel. Since that time the lady goes to the casino and continues to mix in society, but does not see company at her own house and lives in perfect accord with her husband. How did the husband take it all? Quite well, and like an intelligent, sensible man. He said that, if his wife had acted differently, he would have applied for a divorce, because in that case no one would have entertained a doubt of her being guilty. That husband is indeed a sensible fellow. It is certain that, if his wife had given the lie to the indiscreet officer, he would have paid the bet, but he would have stood by what he had said, and everybody would have believed him. By declaring him the winner of the bet, she has cut the matter short, and she has avoided a judgment by which she would have been dishonoured. The inconsiderate boaster was guilty of a double mistake, for which he paid the penalty of his life. But his adversary was as much wanting in delicacy, for in such matters rightly-minded men do not venture upon betting. If the one who says yes is imprudent, the one who says no is a dupe. I like the lady's presence of mind." "'But what sentence would you pass on her? "'Guilty or not guilty?' "'Not guilty.' "'I am of the same opinion, "'and it has been the verdict of the public likewise, "'for she has since been treated even better than before the affair. "'You will see if you go to the casino, "'and I shall be happy to introduce you to her.' "'I invited the officer to sup with us, "'and we spent a very pleasant evening. "'After he had gone, I remarked with pleasure "'that Marina was capable of observing the rules of propriety.' She had taken a bedroom to herself, so as not to hurt the feelings of her respectable fellow-dancer. When I arrived in Mantua, I put up at St. Mark's Hotel. Marina, to whom I had given a notice that my intention was to call on her but seldom, 
took up her abode in the house assigned to her by the theatrical manager. In the afternoon of the same day, as I was walking about, I went into a bookseller's shop to ascertain whether there was any new work out. I remained there without perceiving that the night had come, and on being told that the shop was going to be closed, I went out. I had only gone a few yards when I was arrested by a patrol, the officer of which told me that, as I had no lantern, and as eight o'clock had struck, his duty was to take me to the guardhouse. It was in vain that I observed that, having arrived only in the afternoon, I could not know that order of the police. I was compelled to follow him. When we reached the guardhouse, the officer of the patrol introduced me to his captain, a tall, fine-looking young man who received me in the most cheerful manner. I begged him to let me return to my hotel, as I needed rest after my journey. He laughed and answered, "'No, indeed, I want you to spend a joyous night with me, and in good company.' He told the officer to give me back my sword, and, addressing me again, he said, "'I only consider you, my dear sir, as my friend and guest.' I could not help being amused at such a novel mode of invitation, and I accepted it. He gave some orders to a German soldier, and soon afterwards the table was laid out for four persons. The two other officers joined us, and we had a very gay supper. When the dessert had been served, the company was increased by the arrival of two disgusting, dissolute females. A green cloth was spread over the table, and one of the officers began a faro-bank. I punted so as not to appear unwilling to join the game, and after losing a few seconds I went out to breathe the fresh air, for we had drunk freely. One of the two females followed me, teased me, and finally contrived, in spite of myself, to make me a present which condemned me to a regimen of six weeks. After that fine exploit I went in again. A young and pleasant officer, who had lost some fifteen or twenty sequins, was swearing like a trooper because the banker had pocketed his money and was going. The young officer had a great deal of gold before him on the table, and he contended that the banker ought to have warned him that it would be the last game. "'Sir,' I said to him politely, "'you are in the wrong, for Pharaoh is the freest of games. Why do you not take the bank yourself?' It would be too much trouble, and these gentlemen do not punt high enough for me. But if that sort of thing amuses you, take the bank, and I will punt. Captain, I said, will you take a fourth share in my bank? Willingly. Gentlemen, I beg you to give notice that I will lay the cards down after six games. I asked for new packs of cards, and put three hundred sequins on the table. The captain wrote on the back of a card, Good for a hundred sequins, O'Neillan and placing it with my gold, I began my bank. The young officer was delighted, and said to me, "'Your bank might be defunct before the end of the sixth game.' I did not answer, and the play went on. At the beginning of the fifth game, my bank was in the pangs of death. The young officer was in high glee. I rather astonished him by telling him that I was glad to lose, for I thought him a much more agreeable companion when he was winning.' There are some civilities which very likely prove unlucky for those to whom they are addressed, and it turned out so in this case, for my compliment turned his brain. During the fifth game, a run of adverse cards made him lose all he had won, and, as he tried to do violence to Dame Fortune in the sixth round, he lost every sequin he had. Sir, he said to me, you have been very lucky, but I hope you will give me my revenge to-morrow. It would be with the greatest pleasure, sir, but I never play except when I am under arrest. I counted my money, 
and found that I had won two hundred and fifty sequins, besides a debt of fifty sequins due by an officer who played on trust, which Captain O'Neill took on his own account. I completed his share, and at daybreak he allowed me to go away. As soon as I got to my hotel, I went to bed, and when I awoke, I had a visit from Captain Laurent, the officer who had played on trust. Thinking that his object was to pay me what he had lost, I told him that O'Neillan had taken his debt on himself, but he answered that he had only called for the purpose of begging of me a loan of six sequins on his note of hand, by which he would pledge his honour to repay me within one week. I gave him the money, and he begged that the matter might remain between us. "'I promise it,' I said to him. "'But do not break your word.' The next day I was ill, and the reader is aware of the nature of my illness. I immediately placed myself under a proper course of diet, however unpleasant it was at my age, but I kept to my system, and it cured me rapidly. Three or four days afterwards Captain O'Neill called on me, and when I told him the nature of my sickness he laughed, much to my surprise. "'And then you were all right before that night?' he inquired. "'Yes, my health was excellent. I am sorry that you should have lost your health in such an ugly place.' I would have warned you if I had thought you had any intentions in that quarter. Did you know of the woman having? Zunz, did I not? It's only a week since I paid a visit to the very same place myself, and I believe the creature was all right before my visit. Then I have to thank you for the present she has bestowed upon me. Most likely, but it is only a trifle, and you can easily get cured if you care to take the trouble. What? Do you not try to cure yourself?' Faith, no. It would be too much trouble to follow a regular diet, and what is the use of curing such a trifling inconvenience when I am certain of getting it again in a fortnight? Ten times in my life have I had that patience, but I got tired of it, and for the last two years I have resigned myself, and now I put up with it. I pity you, for a man like you would have great success in love. I do not care a fig for love. It requires cares which would bother me much more than the slight inconvenience to which we were alluding, and to which I am used now. I am not of your opinion, for the amorous pleasure is insipid when love does not throw a little spice in it. Do you think, for instance, that the ugly wretch I met at the guard-room is worth what I now suffer on her account? Of course not, and that is why I am sorry for you. If I had known, I could have introduced you to something better.' The very best in that line is not worth my health, and health ought to be sacrificed only for love. Oh, you want women worthy of love. There are a few here. Stop with us for some time, and when you are cured there is nothing to prevent you from making conquests. O'Neillan was only twenty-three years old. His father, who was dead, had been a general, and the beautiful Countess Borsati was his sister. He presented me to the Countess Zanardi Nerli, still more lovely than his sister, but I was prudent enough not to burn my incense before either of them, for it seemed to me that everybody could guess the state of my health. I have never met a young man more addicted to debauchery than O'Neillan. I have often spent the night rambling about with him, and I was amazed at his cynical boldness and impudence. Yet he was noble, generous, brave, and honourable. If in those days young officers were often guilty of so much immorality— of so many vile actions, it was not so much their fault as the fault of the privileges which they enjoyed through custom, indulgence, or party spirit. Here is an example. One day O'Neillan, having drunk rather freely, rides through the city at full speed. 
A poor old woman, who was crossing the street, has no time to avoid him. She falls, and her head is cut open by the horse's feet. O'Neillan places himself under arrest, but the next day he is set at liberty. He had only to plead that it was an accident. The officer Laurent, not having called upon me to redeem his promissory note of six sequins during the week, I told him in the street that I would no longer consider myself bound to keep the affair secret. Instead of excusing himself, he said, I do not care. The answer was insulting, and I intended to compel him to give me reparation. But the next day O'Neillan told me that Captain Laurent had gone mad and had been locked up in a madhouse. He subsequently recovered his reason, but his conduct was so infamous that he was cashiered. O'Neillan, who was as brave as Bayard, was killed a few years afterwards at the Battle of Prague. A man of his complexion was certain to fall the victim of Mars or of Venus. He might be alive now if he had been endowed only with the courage of the fox, but yet the courage of the lion. It is a virtue in a soldier, but almost a fault in an officer. Those who brave danger with a full knowledge of it are worthy of praise, but those who do not realize it escape only by a miracle, and without any merit attaching itself to them. Yet we must respect those great warriors, for their unconquerable courage is the offspring of a strong soul, of a virtue which places them above ordinary mortals. Whenever I think of Prince Charles de Ligne, I cannot restrain my tears. He was as brave as Achilles, but Achilles was invulnerable. He would be alive now if he had remembered during the fight that he was mortal. Who are they that, having known him, have not shed tears in his memory? He was handsome, kind, polished, learned, a lover of the arts, cheerful, witty in his conversation, a pleasant companion, and a man of perfect equability. Fatal, terrible revolution! A cannon-ball took him from his friends, from his family, from the happiness which surrounded him. The Prince de Valdec has also paid the penalty of his intrepidity with the loss of one arm. It is said that he consoles himself for that loss with a consciousness that with the remaining one he can yet command an army. O oh, you who despise life, tell me whether that contempt of life renders you worthy of it. The opera opened immediately after Easter, and I was present at every performance. I was then entirely cured and had resumed my usual life. I was pleased to see that Balletti showed off Marina to the best advantage. I never visited her, but Balletti was in the habit of breakfasting with me almost every morning. He had often mentioned an old actress who had left the stage for more than twenty years, and pretended to have been my father's friend. One day I took a fancy to call upon her, and he accompanied me to her house. I saw an old, broken-down crone whose toilet astonished me as much as her person. In spite of her wrinkles, her face was plastered with red and white, and her eyebrows were indebted to India ink for their black appearance. She exposed one half of her flabby, disgusting bosom, and there could be no doubt as to her false set of teeth. She wore a wig which fitted very badly, and allowed the intrusion of a few grey hairs which had survived the havoc of time. Her shaking hands made mine quiver when she pressed them. She diffused a perfume of amber at a distance of twenty yards, and her affected, mincing manner amused and sickened me at the same time. Her dress might possibly have been the fashion twenty years before. I was looking with dread at the fearful havoc of old age upon a face which, before merciless time had blighted it, had evidently been handsome, 
but what amazed me was the childish effrontery with which this time-withered specimen of womankind was still waging war with the help of her blasted charms. Baletti, who feared lest my too visible astonishment should vex her, told her that I was amazed at the fact that the beautiful strawberry which bloomed upon her chest had not been withered by the hand of time. It was a birthmark which was really very much like a strawberry. "'It is that mark,' said the old woman, simpering, "'which gave me the name of La Fragoletta.' Those words made me shudder. I had before my eyes the fatal phantom which was the cause of my existence. I saw the woman who had thirty years before seduced my father. If it had not been for her, he would never have thought of leaving his father's house, and would never have engendered me in the womb of a Venetian woman. I have never been of the opinion of the old author who says, Nemo vitam velet si scientibus. Seeing how thoughtful I was, she politely inquired my name from Baletti, for he had presented me only as a friend, and without having given her notice of my visit. When he told her that my name was Casanova, she was extremely surprised. "'Yes, madam,' I said, "'I am the son of Gaetan Casanova, of Parma.' "'Heavens and earth! What is this? Ah, my friend, I adored your father. He was jealous without cause, and abandoned me.' Had he not done so, you would have been my son. Allow me to embrace you with the feelings of a loving mother. I expected as much, and for fear she should fall, I went to her, and received her kiss, and abandoned myself to her tender recollections. Still an actress, she pressed her handkerchief to her eyes, pretending to weep, and assuring me that I was not to doubt the truth of what she said. Although, she added, I do not look an old woman yet. The only fault of your dear father, she continued, was a want of gratitude. I have no doubt that she passed the same sentence upon the son, for, in spite of her kind invitation, I never paid her another visit. My purse was well filled, and as I did not care for Mantua, I resolved on going to Naples, to see again my dear Therese, Donna Lucrezia, Pelo father and son, Don Antonia Casanova, and all my former acquaintances. However, my good genius did not approve of that decision, for I was not allowed to carry it into execution. I should have left Mantua three days later, had I not gone to the opera that night. I lived like an anchorite during my two months' stay in Mantua, owing to the folly I committed on the night of my arrival. I played only at that time, and then I had been lucky. My slight erotic inconvenience, by compelling me to follow the diet necessary to my cure, most likely saved me from greater misfortunes, which, perhaps, I should not have been able to avoid. End of chapter 20, part 2